0: if you've been uprooted once you know it's not such a big deal to kind of go abroad you know and to live uh, live outside the country
1: i'm alex tatt and you're listening to abroad a lifestyle and culture podcast for those who choose a life abroad or for those curious about the international life Today we are joined by Tuan Phan, a literature teacher and writer currently living in Saigon, Vietnam. Tuan was born in Saigon and immigrated to the United States in 1986 after the Vietnam American War. He's now back in the city he first called home to trace his roots. We talk about his refugee experience, fleeing Saigon as a child and settling in the United States, pursuing life and work in Hong Kong, returning to Vietnam, and the idea of home and where that might be for a displaced person. Also, we discuss this upcoming memoir, what it means to read from writers of similar culture and background, and reflect on the issue of personal identity. Welcome to the show, Tuan. You're a humanities teacher and a writer, currently based in Saigon. You grew up in the United
0: States, but you were originally born in Vietnam. Tell us more about yourself. Sure. Um, So I was born in Vietnam, here in Saigon, uh, where I'm back to living, uh, in uh, 1977. Uh, So a couple of years after the war had ended. And uh, pretty much right away, my parents had been, you know, would start to try to leave the country. Um, There were waves of folks leaving the country um, at the time. And, uh, uh, you know, I think when I was um, one year old, you know, we were we were caught trying to, to leave, and uh, my family was in jail for a little bit before we were released uh, back into the workforce. Both of my parents are doctors, so we repeatedly tried to leave um, until uh, 1986, when we successfully left. Uh, we buy a boat, so uh, part of the the boat people sort of exodus.
1: The Vietnam War created a refugee crisis when hundreds of thousands
0: of people fled after the fall of Saigon. Many of them crammed into boats in search of a better life. They were known as the boat people. And then we went to, uh, we stayed in two refugee camps for the span of a little bit over a year. And then mm-hmm. uh, were sponsored to uh, to be in America after that. So. Uh, So my story, you know, started, I guess, with uh, that refugee experience and, uh, you know, and then a childhood in America and uh, growing up loving uh, literature and just learning about America through books to some degree, along with a lot of other sort of sorts of media, right, shows and games and so on. Yeah, sure. Uh, And and then becoming an English teacher, um, taught abroad, starting in Switzerland um, for a couple of years. Uh, came back to America and then for one year, and then I thought I needed to go abroad again because it was such a, a great experience.
1: So I just wanted to pause you there because you've said a whole bunch of stuff that I, I'm not, I wasn't familiar with, so I want to unpack that a little bit more. So, if we can roll back a little bit, you mentioned that your parents mm. were jailed. I think what, and they're both doctors. What was the reason for them being jailed in Vietnam and who jailed them?
0: Uh, well, that was the result of us uh, trying to escape the country um, mm-hmm. you know when uh, when I was just just one and um, so they were caught. I mean, they were being observed and watched yeah we were we were caught uh, trying to leave and they were being observed, I think both of them were uh, medics for the uh, South Vietnamese side uh, during the war mm-hmm. and you know with families that were connected for uh, for the south side right yeah, so I think I think they had the idea to kind of leave for a long time. And, uh, and it's sort of like, you know, a couple of years of sort of settling in and then adjusting and then trying to leave a couple of years, you know, and, and so on until we were finally able to leave.
1: Yeah, it, this is a very common story, actually, of that that attempt to leave, but uh, being obstructed one way or another, meeting some challenges along the way. I know for my mom, I believe she, her and her sister, she, uh, they were able to successfully do it on their first attempt. But they mm. constantly tell me or told me as as I was growing up, how many failed attempts um, with other family members or friends that they've met along the way being cheated of yeah. the, I guess, the, the fare that you need to pay um, to the boat people or who, what some sort of fixer to get you out or um, meeting pirates along the way mm. or some some other treacherous event that that stopped them from from getting out. But yeah. it sounds like there are eyes on your parents and your family as a whole.
0: I mean, I think it's interesting to sort of think about the deterrence, like the fears that the boat people had, right? Your family, my family, and yet this kind of sort of continuous attempt to to go at it, I think, is really interesting. And you know, it's is it fearlessness or like foolhardiness? It's it's a it's a level of um, it's it's a level of kind of bravery i guess um that i can't imagine right i mean i was just a kid taken along for the trip and Mm -hmm. um and that decision wasn't up to me but i just i'm still kind of uh amazed and trying to trying to understand that decision myself like i i i can't place myself as an adult you know potentially with you know with my own children soon of having to make that decision but i think it's sort of, it's the story of our particular times with uh, refugees everywhere, I think. It's now estimated that since 1975, two million Vietnamese boat people put to sea. Four hundred thousand never made it. A human catastrophe that was largely unrecorded.
1: For, For the audience who might be listening and might not be familiar, I am also Vietnamese, half Vietnamese, and my mom Fled Vietnam in the Vietnamese diaspora, similar to Tuan's parents and Tuan himself, uh, in that they they risked a lot. And this is the the story that I'm trying to understand as well and wrap my heads around. Like you were just saying, for my mom and my aunt, two very young women at the time, I believe they're in their early twenties, to take up the option to leave their family um, with. Uh, now my my mom and aunt came from a family with money and my grandfather was able to give them the the amount of money that was required to leave but even then it, it had to be strategic in that it wouldn't attract too much attention and they mentioned that mm-hmm. a few times that they couldn't take everything they could but just the the decision to to wander into the unknown float out into the ocean um the south china sea or the the pacific ocean and just kind of cross your fingers and hope someone out there is crossing paths with you with a compassionate heart and bring you in.
0: This is the east coast of Malaysia. Final destination. Thousands of refugees fleeing Vietnam. Many don't make it this far. They're attacked by pirates, drowned, or starve to death.
1: So for my mom and aunt, they, they end up at the Malaysian refugee. And I think they're hoping to get to California because the weather there is a lot more agreeable. I think a lot of Vietnamese um, people who are in exile were hoping to go to the United States.
0: Mm. We, the three members of the uh, the Vietnamese Refugee Committee here, on behalf of 23,000 refugees, we would like to give this message. It's only for humanitarian reasons because we are living in very terrific conditions and we hope that we will Gets uh, the, all the help of the people in the government of the United States.
1: Uh, but Canada reached out and offered their hand. So for them to go from consistent 30, 35 degrees Celsius weather <laughs> to the dead winter of Canada, I believe they end up in Montreal at one point. And Montreal, if you know anything about Montreal, is just brutally cold at many points of the year. Yeah. For your parents, where, where did they end up for the for their refugee post before uh, moving on?
0: Uh, well, uh, the three of us, we were in uh, Pulau Galang, um, Indonesia, and then and then we went to we stayed there for six months, and then um, we had like a couple of days, or actually three or four days transit in Singapore before we were flown to Bataan in the Philippines, mm-hmm. and once we were in the Philippines. You know, you you pretty much have a have a leg into America, or um, you, uh, you're just waiting to be kind of processed, I guess, as refugees. So we were in in Bataan for another six months, right? Yeah, and then we ended up in you know, talk about like places where you expected to, or we thought we'd end up in, versus where we ended up in the story and the t- sort of tales of sort of the city and you know New York City or California. You know, we ended up in Toledo, Ohio, right in the middle of America. Um, so, uh, and it's such a different scene and kind of picture, you know, um, cornfields near, uh, parking lots. And it it was just a very, very different picture from, from what I imagined. But it was also such a, such a different world, you know, to sort of massive lawns and and houses. And that's, that's where Mm -hmm. we ended up, uh, for the first start in America anyway.
1: How old were you at the time when, when your parents decided to pick you up and go?
0: Uh, I was eight, and I turned nine in Bataan uh and my brother was actually conceived in Bataan and uh
1: mm.
0: he's kind of a refugee as well
1: when you were leaving at the time you were seven you said eight turning nine what do you remember what What were the conditions in Vietnam at the time um do you remember home? Do you remember anything before that experience before the the exile at all
0: yeah um well, this is th- this is part of the reason why I've sort of returned and uh, wanted to write uh, about uh, my memories, my young early childhood memories, um, because I do have them and I do recall my really early days and, and years here in Vietnam, and I and I recall with some clarity also the the year in the refugee camps and the boat trip, you know, uh, which was harrowing as well, but you know it's. I I remember enough, but it's interesting that I always, you know, I I, you also get a chance to sort of test some of those memories with your parents, whose memories, at least at the time, were adults um, versions of uh, and much more clear, I guess. But my sort of my sense of those years were much more um, sheltered and much more um, much happier, I guess, than my parents were because I was a protected kid, and you don't really think about. Uh, being poor or poverty until you're, you're next to people that aren't right. So, you know, mm-hmm. not until I went to America and saw like, you know, the gleaming interior of a bathroom, right. Did I realize that, oh, you know, that's wealth or that's, uh, you know, the kind of lifestyle that Americans live in. And that wasn't how we were living when we were in Vietnam. I just remember, mm-hmm. you know, friends playing marbles, playing crickets, um, you know, my parents driving me into the city, uh, the trees of the city, I remembered a lot and, and on our trips kind of around the country. Um, so they're really mm-hmm. sort of happy memories for me. And I don't think that that's true necessarily if you ask my parents that. Um, they, I mean, they have happy memories with me, but their experience uh, and their lives at the time in Vietnam were drastically different, you know, much much sadder much more worrisome you know, my mom was much more anxious about, uh, she wasn't able to work as a doctor, she was asked to go, um, you know, uh, down to the Delta to work there. Um, But she would have had to leave her family, right? Because my dad was allowed to practice in the city. But again, you know, he was observed, and he was watched. So, so we have very different sort of uh, memories of of Vietnam. And I, part of what I wanted to do with writing was to sort of recall some of my own memories and then to ask them about some of theirs as well.
1: Hmm. And we're going to get to your writing in, in a bit, because I really want to uh, flesh that out. Where do you think home is right now? Because this this show right now is all about being abroad. And as I'm listening yeah. to you talk, you speak you speak quite fondly of a time before you left on the boat. And it's it's very clear that that was home for you, but you also grew up in the United States for quite some time. And then you've also moved abroad and worked in other places and lived in other places. So for you, it's, where, where do you consider home is?
0: Um, I think home is where you situate your, your presence and, and it's where family and friends and, and memories are, right? So it's, it's a complicated question for someone for anyone I think who's lived uh, abroad and has experienced a kind of displacement. So I think for those that have been uh, exiled, like uh, my parents, and to some degree, me as well, um, you know, I didn't choose to leave Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And I think I have a very nostalgic, probably incompl- very incomplete you know, nostalgic and uh, picture of Vietnam during the time. So for me, home is Saigon right now, right? Or Ho Chi Minh City, if you're gonna call it by its official name. It's because it's where my wife is. Uh, we're recently uh married. It's my, you know, uh, it's uh, I've lived here now for four years. Um but I've been I'd been visiting four years before that. But I also consider the the Saigon of my past a kind of a home too. So I think that you can you can consider your memories of a place or you can consider the experience, the years that you spent at a place. And call it home because I don't think that people necessarily live exactly in the present all the time, right? I think that people carry their their past with them and and they, their memories with them. So so it's a complicated sort of answer. I I think that for me right now, Saigon is home, but the the Saigon of the past is also my home. The Boston Boston that I spent that such a great time, a deal of my time uh, sort of growing up in. Uh, Is also home Toledo, Ohio is also home to some degree. The the that year of living in the refugee camps um, was a bit of a home, even even though (laughs) even though I call it the most sort of displaced and and uh, and strange home. But for me, it was I I I would call that year a year of uh, a family um, and of and of something like a home because my parents were both with me. And I had a, an experience as a refugee that I think is quite privileged and protected. You know, I don't think that any other refugee would say any any time during their years in transit and and waiting to be processed into another country that that was home. But for me, there were moments that I can retain and recall. I mean, I had my birthday in Bataan, you know,
1: mm-hmm. so I
0: can uh, I was a pretty sheltered kid in that sense. So, you know, so to to go back to that question, I think the complicated answer for me is, that um, it, perceiving home or defining home as a, as, as a kind of an active action. You know, It's something that um, you, you do, um, you decide on that home. And, and for me right now, it's Saigon.
1: Interesting. I'd love to ask my mom that question mm. because you mentioned a lot about um, the displaced person and their sense of home and it changes and, and it, you carry your memories with you. Somehow I suspect that my mom doesn't see Vietnam and saigon as home anymore i think yeah when i ask her like where would you like to go when you retire she's retired now but i'm like where would you like to go to spend the last you know however many years you have um and enjoy the rest of your life and vietnam is not in the in the picture for her like she would happily go back and visit but i think the only thing that really ties her Back to Vietnam as to give her any sense of home is um her her father's grave mm-hmm. going to pay respects to the grave mm-hmm. and the house that her father left behind, not for her, but as kind of in a lot of Asian cultures as kind of like that placeholder, that anchor yeah. point for a lot of family. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the only thing that's kind of pulling her back and giving her a sense of that perhaps this is still home. Mm-hmm. But she's been in Toronto for, I, th- I think, over 40 years now. So uh, that's very much her home. And she, and she says it in, in the way she talks to me about, like, when she asks, when are you coming home? She's, she doesn't mean right. to Vietnam. She means coming home to Toronto. But again, I think Toronto is, serves as that traditional Asian culture focal point of home now. Like, mm-hmm. she's the matriarch of the family, or she sees herself and presents herself that way. And um the home in Toronto, the house in Toronto, is not just a physical structure, but is' actually the the home that she would like to leave behind for her children. My sister and I, one of the big things that she said that is like, you are never to sell this place because it's more than just whatever savings I poured into it
0: yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think uh it's it's so hard for our, for our generation necessarily to sort of understand our parents' kind of um. Experience with exile, right, because I think that uprooting is is so is so traumatizing, really, I think, because I think when you when you leave a country or you birth country and a country that you've spent you know your early childhood and young adulthood into adulthood, whatever, without your choice and you know that that experience is really tears at, at, at your your soul, your bindings, you know so I think for oftentimes it's, um, I I get the sense sometimes that my mom, you know, really, really uh, wants to create a kind of house and gardens kind of home in America. You know, she's so so interested in really creating a place where our families can, you know, uh, my aunt is in uh, America, was in America for a while. My uncle who's passed away was there as well. So there was really such a strong desire to create A kind of domestic space where, you know, where we can congregate and kind of actively create, uh, um, you know, a home for ourselves because that experience of leaving the country was so traumatizing. Sure.
1: For you, you've been to many different places now. I didn't even know that you had worked and lived in Switzerland. Walk me through that. Like, how did you find yourself from, I guess, New England was where you kind of launched yourself from. You, You went to school there and lived there for a little bit. And then you found yourself in Switzerland and then you came back, you mentioned?
0: I was teaching at the time at Wilmington Friends School. And I was finishing my second year <clears throat> of teaching there, ever. And I was getting mm-hmm. the hang of, uh, hang of teaching. And then the, um, there was a, a new headmaster at the American School in Switzerland, Jeff Bradley. And he actually was a summer school director for my first teaching gig. So he wrote to all of his mm-hmm. interns and uh, assistant teachers of a summer when I was still in school and in school still in university, and said that he's the new headmaster and you know would you like to apply? And I applied and I got the job and I made a really quick decision. It was like I am brand new to teaching. It would be amazing to to go abroad and uh, and have and you know since we'd gone to America, right um, the. You know with that first being uprooted uh, time we lived in a lot of different places in america but i hadn't really gone abroad I maybe went to canada you know and that's it right so um right. so i jumped at the chance and i and i think sometimes like at least for younger folks like us or at the time i was young if you've been uprooted once you know it's not such a big deal to kind of go abroad you know and to live uh live outside the country and it was great. Mm-hmm. I mean, I you know, we got to see Europe and uh, I got to, you know, drive a van with kids around to a lot of different places. Um, we, we, we were all, It was a boarding school, so we were required to sort of right. take trips with kids sometimes and drive them around. So it was fun.
1: Yeah, I, I totally, uh, I definitely hear you there. I just came from a boarding school prior to this school and there's a lot of um, that pastoral care yeah. there for sure. But Switzerland's a great opportunity for uh, a first teaching gig abroad. It's yeah. uh, many people work their entire lives as international educators to find their way to places like Switzerland and um, other places in Europe. Yeah. From there, you, you, you came back to the United States. And I know that when I met you out there on the ultimate frisbee field, mm-hmm. uh, the first thing I learned about you is that you were working and teaching at a Canadian international school in Hong Kong. Tell me, how did you find yourself in Hong Kong? How did that opportunity present itself to you?
0: Sure. Uh, it was Chinese international school, actually. So... Um... Okay. So I I was back for one year in America, and I realized that I just so dreadfully missed being abroad. You know, (laughs) I I, so I looked immediately, uh, sort of halfway through the year for jobs abroad, and uh, and really, actually, at the time, I wanted to go to Vietnam because my last summer uh, after my last year teaching in Switzerland, I took my summer break to spend i guess my first 10 or 12 days traveling and going back to vietnam for the first time after 21 years and it was such an emotional reconnection with the country um and with people who are vietnamese um and with the past that i just sort of i sort of locked away and and sort of kind of forgotten about you know you like you you grow up in america you want to assimilate and one of the aspects of assimilation is unfortunately is just you know discarding parts of yourself, if you, especially if you're, nephew, right. you're from the outside you know and you're a stranger and it was great, mm-hmm. and I wanted to go back to Vietnam now, so I applied for jobs in Vietnam to some search fairs and uh, or, um, uh, and, and I, I got close, but i didn't get to i didn't place yet at the time. it was still kind of early in the season, and then a good friend of mine found a job at a Chinese international school in Hong Kong. And he said, there's another post there that's available. So you should just apply. And I just checked to see how close Hong Kong was to Vietnam. And it was, it was a quick mm-hmm. flight. And I, had, I, knew, I knew nothing about Hong Kong. I just, I saw the skyline. I was like, what a great skyline. What a great city. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and I decided to go uh, after I interviewed and, uh, uh, and got the job.
1: And you were there for about two or three years, I believe?
0: No, no, I was there for eight years. Uh, I was there for a good long time. Oh, okay. So I'm a, I'm a permanent resident or I have a permanent residency card uh, with Hong Kong. You, uh, you can get that after you stay there for seven years.
1: Okay. Have you been following some of the developments going on in Hong Kong right now?
0: Yeah. Um, yep, absolutely. I mean, I think it's... Uh, I'm. I'm shocked at how quickly it all went down. You know, I think... I was mm-hmm. there for the umbrella revolution, so, so the protests yeah. were starting you know uh, at the time, and then I left, and then really pretty much uh, two years I think after I left, Carrie Lam uh, became uh, you know so all of the all of the uh, what happened, it took place so rapidly while I was here in Vietnam. Um, so I have been following mm-hmm. it and sort of listening to and keeping up with some of my friends and WhatsApp chatter about what's going on in Hong Kong. Sure
1: how is that going to impact your permanent residency is that something that you that is still afforded to you given what's going on and and i guess you can really the yeah. eroding autonomy of hong kong
0: yeah it's interesting you know my mom uh, visited me in hong kong and i showed we went to the protest sites for uh, this is doing the yellow uh, umbrella revolution and so we went we walked around and she was really quite moved um, with the students and what they were doing, and she said, you know, we, my generation, we, we didn't realize what uh, we could lose until it happened. And she was really touched by the students realizing what they could lose uh, and how how hard they were fighting for their freedoms, you know. Mm-hmm. And 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 it just it happened so quickly. Like that's that's what I'm still shocked about. Just how brazen uh, China has been. That's you know as Right after, so right now I have we. I actually had plans to bring my wife uh, at the time, fiance, to come visit Hong Kong, but the the protests were quite mm. quite harsh, and then also her visa application um, was denied as well. I wasn't quite sure what that was for, but their explanation was because um, you know the, the, it was there was so much turmoil in the in the, in the city. Right. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think it has implications for anyone even sort of transiting and going into Hong Kong for a bit. You know, so at, at the moment, I, I, I just kind of follow at a distance, but I uh, and I don't quite know what the future holds. It looks really grim, though, from what I can see. Mm-hmm.
1: After Hong Kong, you found your way to Vietnam. And one of the coolest things that, um, that I learned about you is that your choice to move to Vietnam was to take a sabbatical. Walk me through that decision. How do you why a sabbatical? Why then?
0: Well, I loved working at my school. And I'd been there forever. I was at the time uh, a Dean for a year group. And, uh, but I also at the time, you know, I, the, the reason why I was moving back to Asia really was for Vietnam. And I was taking trips now and then as much as I could to Vietnam. And I knew that my writing or my interest really was, was in, uh, in writing about Vietnam and, 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 uh, and our family's experiences so Mm uh so that past and uh and that sort of ever-changing current sort of developing metropolis of saigon uh, is was something i was really interested in so i took a year off finally or i requested a sabbatical year and the administration Mm -hmm. was super thoughtful and understanding they said uh you know look we'll have you back and you can be the dean again if you want and, and uh the next year and uh by October or November, I realized that my writing project and uh, my interest in the country uh, and being being here, being back, really, as I mentioned, home, right? Um, and and trying mm-hmm. to trying to place the Vietnam that I kind of remembered in bits and pieces in the past and the current Vietnam that I was experiencing—that was the project of what I wanted to do. And it wasn't going to take just one year sabbatical. I, I needed to kind of be here a bit longer. And I just, I just loved living here. I just, I loved the energy of the city and I loved, I loved hearing Vietnamese and, you know, and talking and speaking back and, you know, and all of that stuff. So, so I told my old school that I was going to stick around uh, and that I'm really sorry, but uh, thanks for the sabbatical. (laughs) I'm probably not going to come back. (laughs) So then I started searching for jobs and then, uh, and I found a job here. Yeah. And I've been there since.
1: And we'll get a little bit more into your sabbatical and what you've been up to Mm -hmm. since then. And we're going to take a quick break as teachers, you and I, you know, that we need a quick little brain break to recharge before we get to that brain break. Let's take a look at Instagram stories. Okay, sure. So this is an idea that I, <laughs> I kind of got this idea from Sean Evans. He does interviews with, um, hot ones where you're eating, uh, a continuum of spicy hot wings. Okay. So it gets hotter and hotter on the school bill. Yeah. And the idea is like you're, you're answering questions and some of them are quite thoughtful questions. Some of them are private, uh, personal questions and you're doing it as you're trying to, you know, deal with the spice. But one of the things that he does is he he looks at Instagram posts and asks for the story behind that. Okay, I think that is something that I like to do with the international life because we tend to curate our international life um, on Instagram on other platforms of social media. Mm. Uh, and people get to see a flash of that. They they see this this sense of um, travel and indulgence, and it all looks really nice. But they might not understand the story behind it. So let's take a look at that. I'm picking one Instagram post, and I've asked you to pick one Instagram post for yourself. So we'll take a look at mine yeah. first. And for the audio component, for people listening and not um, tuning into the, the visual show, I'm just going to describe this post a little bit. And it looks like it's geotagged in... Nguyen Ninh, the, in the Long An, Long An province yeah. of Vietnam. And this was posted August 27th of 2018. And your caption is, in the picture, it's you and your father and a very suspect-looking motorbike. It does, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the caption says, road tripping with dad, I'm um, Jai. In other words, handsome old man. Yes. And you have all these hashtags, rice paddies, uh, rice paddies Vietnam, motorbiking Vietnam. Yeah. I, I really like this photo. To me, it captures that relationship with your father. And of course, um, you know, your father, you and your father had lived in Vietnam and experienced this, uh, this incredible journey that belongs with the Viena- Vietnamese diaspora mm. story. But I want to know more about this story. And what was it like to have your parents or your father come back and, and do this sort of trip with him?
0: Yeah, I mean, this this was a great day. Um, we had just spent the uh, the morning going to uh, che, uh in the mm-hmm. delta, and that's where my dad's family side is from. Um, hmm. My dad's side of the family is from, um, and we spent the whole day just kind of um, you know going back there, uh, meeting up with my relatives, and we do this. I mean, when I was a kid, we did this uh you know every break we had uh, you know, uh summer break and so on, so we had the whole day doing that, and then on the drive back, my dad said, "Hey, you know we're gonna stop by a um the family of a little boy that I sort of I operated on when I was back here, like just last year so uh so we stopped by, so we took a sort of a slight detour instead of going direct north and east. we kind of went slightly north and west to Longang and, uh, and hung out with the family. Um, you know, they uh, live really out in the rural uh, countryside and you see like rice paddies, you see some uh, fish farms and um, just, it was great. Um, you know, and uh, so we took a car, but then there after we had, um, after we met up with a family, before, before we had dinner with them, they said, "Hey, let's uh, let me show you, you know, the the, the farm where I work." And uh, we got on. They loaned us uh, their motorbikes, or uh, and then uh, we took off after them. We we drove out, you know, right basically to the rice paddies. To we also saw, um, you know, as I mentioned, the fish farm there that they were working on, um, and it was really really cool. Like the the father was super thankful for my father uh, and his and, uh, and mm-hmm. work and. And his son was there um, and he sort of invited me to come back. he was like, I know your father is not going to be here, but you are still living in the city and, you know, come back whenever you want have dinner with us. And it was it was great. Um, my father comes back uh, every once in a while and he stays, you know, three or four months at a time. He's he's actually a, mm-hmm. dual, a dual citizen now. Um, so he regained his Vietnamese citizenship. Um, and, uh, he's, he's essentially in retirement, but, uh, you know, he does operate every once in a while, uh, when he comes back, uh, or just sort of helps out when we went to Bintrea, he's just sort of also sort of doctored a little bit for the folks that are there, uh, because right. they know him so well.
1: Kind of like service and giving back to the community.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and he's, awesome. he's just so happy, you know, I think, his is a story, I think, of just sort of, um, I mean, you know, the, the exit and the uh, the departure from the country was quite sad for him. I think more so, perhaps even than my mom. I think, I think he's he's a bit more. Um, you know, we we talked about sort of the sense of home. You know, my father's home is very much in mm-hmm. sort of Benja and Saigon to some to a large degree. You know, because uh, land the land is still there. His family's. Um, mm-hmm. uh, place and location are still all there whereas I think my mom's side of the family uh, feels a bit more dispersed. So whenever I see my dad back, uh, he's just a completely different person and you know and knowing sort of also his facility with Vietnamese, his ability to banter in Vietnamese versus uh, sort of the staccato struggles that he has, you know he um, to express himself in English it's it's always great to kind of see him, much more at at home, I guess you can say, uh, back yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Let's pivot to your second picture. Sure. Uh, this is your pick here. Describing this picture, it's geotagged on Fukuok Island. Yes. Um, posted on February 13th of 2018. And the caption, well, the photo shows a very nice sunset um, in the horizon. There's a boat off in the distance and a couple of people in in the sea. And you've written... Sunset, boat, and couple in silhouette. Yeah. Tell me more about this. Okay.
0: So this is the, I guess you could say, a typical romantic picture, right? Uh, I'm not in the picture. <laughs> I just happened to be traveling with some friends at the time in Phu <laughs> And it's a beautiful sunset in Phu Quoc. Uh, there's a couple that just sort of um, was swimming out there in silhouette. And, uh, and there's a fishing boat, I guess, or maybe a, uh, maybe a squid boat. I'm not really sure. But uh, just hanging out there as well. And this is how, this is essentially how I met my wife. Um, she liked the picture because at the time she was a um, designer with a, a company that sort of does beach wear and sort of casual wear for women. And so she liked a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, hashtag beach pictures. And I think, I don't know if it's my hashtag or it was Phu Quoc Island. And, you know, she likes Phu Quoc or she likes, uh, you know, beach areas in, in Vietnam. But anyway, randomly she found it. And I randomly stalked her Instagram account, <laughs> and uh, and I, I, we we chatted with each other quite a bit on Instagram because it turned out that we had a lot of things in common. And uh, and you know, I finally got her to meet up with me. I think months later, we're talking like three months later. So it was just sort of a friendship over Instagram due to some strong stalking from me. Right. And uh, and it was from this picture.
1: So this was the infamous photo. I, I hadn't. This is the first time I'd seen it. Yeah. I know you told me this um, briefly before that this wonderful, beautiful woman had messaged you and and you went for it and so this is it. Yeah, this is the this is what started it all.
0: I should say she she didn't message me. She just liked the picture. This is how this is how creepy I will sound now. she she just liked the picture and I was like, she's <laughs> not amongst my friends. So here's who's this person? Who's this person? So so I wrote to her back. Yeah.
1: Hey, you're being resourceful, right? That that's a great modern love modern day love story. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about your sabbatical and the creative work that you were doing at the time. If you're enjoying this episode of Abroad, make sure you're hitting that subscribe button and tune in to new episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcast, or whatever platform you're currently listening to this on. If you currently live abroad and would like to tell your story on the show, Or you know someone living abroad who has a great story and might want to share, please reach out by email alextat at gmail.com or Instagram DM at thisisalextat. I would love to collaborate. And now, back to the show. Okay, uh, welcome back to the second half of the show. In the second half, we tend to talk a little bit more about um, current events or issues, um, something a little bit uh, deeper that we can connect to, to ourselves. So I want to focus a little bit on your writing. Your writing seems to touch on something that I've, I've always been wanting to know more and more and educate myself a little bit more, and that's the, the issue of identity and culture. Before we get into that, let's talk a little bit more about your writing. So, my first question is, what what kind of writing are you are you most passionate about? What type of stories do you typically write and tell?
0: Well, the project that I started with my sabbatical was a memoir. and it actually was initially a memoir about uh, returning to Vietnam and seeing uh, how Vietnam has changed and is changing. and uh, specific mm-hmm. specifically, Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City, um, because um, my past was here. You know, my early childhood was here. And it's evolved into a memoir of the year traveling and leaving the country, as well as mm-hmm. the return. So a kind of a side-by-side, you know, uh, juxtaposition of, uh, of that experience of leaving and returning. So the kinds of writing and the kinds of, uh, the kinds of reading that I... I guess I'm really interested in, at this moment, I think, is are texts that deal with memory, um, that deal with you know displacement, but also you know the the kind of uh, stories that that deal with a kind of attempt to kind of create identity and build identity in in the midst of displacement. I like all kinds of genres, but I think at least for the year off that I took to write, I was really interested in memoirs because that was what I was writing, the genre that I was writing. Um, and and the, the initial text that I uh, really enjoyed would be sort of, uh, you know, Annie Dillard's An American Childhood, Andrew Lamb's essays, uh, East Eats West, mm-hmm. uh, Perfume Dreams. Mm-hmm. You know? um, I'm so lucky to actually, so I, when I was a college student, uh, undergrad, I went to San Francisco for the first time, and I and I picked up a book of his essays, uh, and that was the East, East, West. Mm-hmm. And I was so, I really, really l- loved that collection. And I just thought, well, here's a Vietnamese American writer doing some of the stuff that I like to do, you know? Um, so it's, it's mm-hmm. that kind of genre that really moved me. And I think essays for me, at least essays and memoirs, um, to me, allows me to consider and weigh and 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 also attempt to kind of recall my past a bit um, and then to to talk to family you know to have the kind of conversations that I that we as a family didn't really have when we were trying to just adjust to living in America mm-hmm. uh, so as you know as compelling as sort of novels are at least for these years so the last couple of years I've just been really really interested in in the memoir as a form and in you know, in the personal essay as a form as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Have you have you been consulting your parents a lot? Like as the process of writing your memoir. Um, and before before we go further, you do your memoir is called Remembering Water. Yeah. When you're writing Remembering Water, were you consulting your parents uh, or anyone related to help you fill in the gaps or give you a sense of of um, tone or or what have you?
0: Yeah, I think that. The first source is my own memory, and and even if it's fallible, even if it's wrong, there's something interesting in that because I think that the mistakes that the mistakes of remembering is is a part of it forms a part of my identity, right? I think we are we are nostalgic for for certain events in our past, even if it's not true, you know. And I, I and I'm curious about that. I'm fascinated by. The mistakes of of in remembering, and and the idea of remembering water. I mean, that's you know, I think that that idea is interesting and and it captures a little bit of that attempt to to recall and hold something that isn't easily graspable. And of course, right after my own memories would be um, would be my parents because they are they remember with more clarity, they remember with more kind of exacting precision about. That past, mm-hmm. but they remember with the same emotional sort of um, uh, lenses, you know what I mean, so that their memories are to mm-hmm. to a certain degree as subjective as mine, so the the project is to me um fallible but really wonderfully interesting because it's fallible and I think having the conversation of, of these subjective memories, placing them side by side is uh it's it's a worthwhile project so that was what I was particularly interested in. I did sit my mom down and sort of asked her, uh, try to record some of what she said. And then I also had a lot of really mm-hmm. casual conversations where I would try to slip in a couple of questions, you know, where, where yeah. she's kind of unprepared and then try to get her to, um, you know, to to talk a little bit more about what she remembered of the boat trip and, uh, and our times in the refugee camps. But they're also really, op- you know, they opened up a lot uh, to me, especially now that I see them to some, you know, oftentimes here in Vietnam, you know, my, my dad has loads of stories about his childhood, his past and his relationship with his father and so on. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and unfortunately the book isn't specifically about that, but there's loads of material should, should I wish it to, you know, to pursue some of those strands.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned that they had opened up a little bit to you about that. And for me, speaking to my mom and dad about it, I I find it a little bit uncomfortable sometimes. Like I just, I feel like I'm prying into um, a traumatic past that I don't, I don't necessarily feel comfortable at or at ease bringing up because I don't know what kind of uh, emotional response I might get. Uh, And sometimes I get, I do probe a little bit, and I see, I see that the the lasting impact that it's it's had. Um, so I haven't had a chance to really talk to both of my parents too much about it. And now my experience is, is uniquely different from yours in that I was, I, I was born in Toronto. I was born mm. in Canada. Mm. So, you know, I'm further removed from that. But when my parents, uh, when my mom arrived in Toronto in 1980, you know, it's, so there's quite a bit of separation. How open, how comfortable were your parents in talking about um, these these issues and recalling the events?
0: I talked more to my mom because I I just had a bit more access to her, and I to be completely honest, I'm I'm a bit closer to my mom. Um, you know, my parents my right. parents divorced uh, not too long after we moved to America, and uh, and my mom mm-hmm. raised me. Um, so. Having conversations with her it's it's really really challenging it's really hard for her to sort of open up and and it's hard for her to remember because these are really painful memories you know they're traumatizing mm-hmm. but she also said to me that um, that she she finds them helpful as well and i you know it's it's a tricky line to you know to walk on i guess to or to 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 straddle because um i don't want to be so exploiting their stories. I, I don't think that's the idea. I think the idea is for my mom and I both to sort of understand that experience. Um, and a better understanding sometimes comes through conversation or through dialogue about it and and remembering it, sort of actively remembering it with language, right? To provide a kind of language mm-hmm. for, for remembering it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so you and I are slightly different. You're right. I think in that you were born in America. And I think for me, having gone through that refugee experience, uh, and asking my mom about it and asking my dad about it, it's, it's, it's perhaps a little bit easier for them to, to, to say, it was like, oh, okay, you remember it being this way. It was actually kind of more like this. Right. Um, right. and you know, at, part of the, part of the challenge for them, like, for example, my, you know, my my mom and my dad had a really tough time kind of re- recalling a moment when they felt really guilty, because I found you know mm-hmm. they they tried to convince me on the on the ry- on the way over on the ways of escaping that we were actually going to my grandfather's in in the delta, just a really roundabout way, like mm. a really massive river, <laughs> um, and I was. <laughs> And I was small enough to, young enough to just buy it, you know. And then when I found out midway through the boat, uh, you know, we were on the boat and we were out and uh, I cried my eyes out. And they, they recall that moment and had such, felt such guilt um, with that, um, with, you know, with deceiving me, I guess. But then also with realizing that it it wasn't my choice, right? Like they made the choice to risk Mm -hmm. their lives to escape the country. But they mm-hmm. they made the choice for me to risk my life to re- to leave the country and and that was really hard for them to to say and to talk about. But again, I think I think for my mom's side anyway, it, it she says that it, it it helps her to to remember to say some of these things out.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's important, um, especially for both of you, to process it together. I I don't think anyone would ever charge you of taking advantage of the story and exploiting it for any sort of gain. It's I think it's especially important for for these diverse backgrounds, this diverse point of view, these these experiences to kind of come to the forefront because it's it's not a it's not a common story, but there is a common underlying theme or or something to it. Mm-hmm um, that is not always, un- I don't think it's unique to Vietnam, that experience of being displaced, no, absolutely not, um, against your own will. Um, but certainly like some of the events that leading up to it during and after are, are uniquely Vietnamese. And I think that's important to, to retell. Yeah. And, uh, I, I find myself reflecting a little bit more on it. Like I know just a day or two ago, I was just thinking like, I need to, I don't want to say trick, but I want to talk to my parents and, and, um, have a recorder running in the background because i know that that would probably elicit a more candid response Uh, they might be suspicious why i'm asking certain questions and asking for their story in greater detail Mm -hmm. but i understand that they are like my mom's 70 71 this year my my dad's in his late 60s and i definitely want to get their story out and preserve it so yeah yeah, i i don't think it's uh I don't think it's a matter of exploiting. I don't think that would ever be the sense that anyone would get. But it's certainly that that sense of preserving the story because they're still alive right now, and I think that's very that's very important and powerful to to keep that.
0: Yeah, but it's always so troublesome when you dig into trauma, right? You're always it's it's always it's always um it's it's always a calculation that you make, I think, as a writer. Uh, when, when you're when you're mm-hmm. doing that, um, there's a great story by Nam Le called uh, "Pride and Honor and Pity and Compassion." It's, it's a long, long and sacrifice. It's a it's a great story about him or a character like Nam uh, writing a story about his mm-hmm. father. Uh, and anyway, it's I just would recommend it to uh, your listeners to to check that out. And also, there's a, a great Vietnamese American play called "Viet Gone." That was on on, Mm -hmm. off Broadway a while, and the last scene is brilliant. It's it's a brilliant conversation and dialogue between father and son, Hmm. and the son asking, doing exactly what you mentioned, sort of like a you know, well, not in secret, but sort of a videotape, a a, a tape recorder, recording his father's experiences, and they have this yeah this wonderful last scene together, and it's really conflicted and it's and it's but it's but it's great anyway. I just wanted to give those two names
1: absolutely yeah did you ever read um the graphic novels mouse yes yeah are you familiar with it Mm -hmm. it's that work i don't i don't care much for graphic novels i don't want to say i don't care much it's not something i gravitate to Mm -hmm. but when someone recommended mouse to me i i read the first book and then immediately went to the library to get the second book first of all the the way of storytelling is is amazing capturing the experience in a, a visual and written format but the characterization of Jews as, as mice and um, Nazis as cats. But underneath it all, this, this um, preserving the story of the father, really, and uh, the process of it. Because the, the author has talked about how, how long it took for him to really flesh the story out for many reasons. I mean, I think partly through the second book, his father died. So um, the research process of uncovering that story became a little bit more challenging. I find that to be incredibly impactful and I think it's, it's worth it for anyone similar to you, similar to myself, where there's a story there to uncover and, and preserve it one way or another. Yeah, And I think it's, it's good for others to, to take a look at it and, and make a connection to it. The title of your, your memoir is called Remembering Water. Can you explain that title a little bit more to me? What's the meaning behind that title?
0: I think that uh water is a really complicated and um and comp- just a very complex term and word in in Viet- Vietnamese and it can mm-hmm. mean it's one of those words that can mean a lot of different you know things right so so nuoc is is water and it it it's also country right it's also you know it's a, it's it it has this kind of complexity in it and i think what i wanted to capture behind uh that um, that name, that title, was the the impossibility of recalling and of remembering, but also mm-hmm. the importance of it. So, Nuuk is so important to Vietnamese identity. You know, it's it's what mm-hmm. it's what feeds the rice fields, right? It's 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 what we right. are nourished off of. It's our country is bordered by water. It's um, you know, um, and and. And the delta is, is an essential, essential part of my uh, father's side and, and their way of life. Mm-hmm. So to me, it speaks to the, res- the resonance of, of our identities and also the, the trickiness of trying to recall the past and to recall our identities, especially if you are displaced. And we were displaced by water. You know, we... We chose the route that hmm. is the most, I think in many ways, the most perilous. And we tossed our, you know, our, we, we gave up our, we depended on, we relied upon twists of fates and winds and storms and sea storms and pirates, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I think there was something mm-hmm. something to that uh, fearlessness, I think, that uh, of the refugees that were willing to, to do that, that I wanted to, to acknowledge, I guess, with, uh, with such a title.
1: I was wondering if it had to do a little bit with, with wordplay, because I was trying to figure it out. And as you, you're sitting there explaining to me how the importance of water as, as you know, that's that's how the Vietnamese people during the diaspora, that's how they got out, and how much of it impacts the fertility of the land, and, and also how much of it surrounds the country. I was thinking about the word uh, water, too, because in Vietnamese, the word for water is nook, like you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was wondering if it had to do with the idea of remembering country. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's uh, I wasn't sure if that was intentional. Yeah.
0: I mean, if you, tr- if you, if you translate it... <laughs> I feel so proud of breaking that. <laughs> <it. laughs> I mean, if you if you translate it to Vietnamese, right, it's Yanu, uh, right? Um, Nganuk, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and uh, you know, and I think it has something to do with that. It also has to do with nostalgia as well. You know, I think that you asked our parents' generation mm-hmm. a, a, a question about about the country and about their memories of it. And I think their memories of it, their, their idealized kind of crystallized form of the country is pre 1975, mm-hmm. uh, South Vietnam, mm-hmm. right. Or Saigon during those times. And, uh, and that's, that's what they are nostalgic for. That's, that's the, that's the, the new th- <laughs> the recall, I guess, you know, so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I think it's, I, I want it to be about memory and I want it to be about country and I want it to be about identity and, uh, and risk and, and, um, and the the flow of memory and how hard it is to uh, mm. to dip one's hand in and 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 try to try to grip it.
1: What was it like writing about your own
0: life? Uh, it was great. It was great and painful yeah. and great <laughs> and back and forth. Um, I there I had such happy childhood memories of living here that I think mm-hmm. the act of remembering it was um, so terrific, and um, I had such complicated memories i guess you could say about the refugee experience that Mm -hmm. combine a lot of different things that yeah it was great i I think the only thing that i sort of kind of realized about it is actually in writing it in writing it down um you remember it for that time you write it down and it's in it's it's placed into language but then you tend to i i tend to anyway i tend to remember a little bit less you know like it's weird it's it's Mm. The act of remembering it and then writing about it actually lessens the memory somehow for me. And, and that's a mm. strange thing too, because I'm living in the, in, in the city that, I'm, that I had written about and the city has changed so much that the, yeah. the, the memory is, is no longer as tangible, right? Because the city is ever present. I'm always kind of seeing, seeing it anew and it's changing so much that mm-hmm. it's hard to kind of hold the memory of the city. Uh, now that I'm living here, in some ways, if I had just stayed in America and preserved it in amber, I would actually remember it better <laughs> than, than, not, than 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 not writing about it and living here.
1: Right. And my mom's mentioned that quite a bit, too, where when she's been back and she'll FaceTime me or something from Vietnam and say, like, I just don't remember these places anymore. And yeah. a lot of that has to do with the the effect of war when one side wins, there is a physical removal of places. Mm-hmm. Street names changed. Um, and then you have globalization and foreign investments coming in changing that too. So a lot of the memories, the layers of those memories in that city mm-hmm. are displaced in themselves or just totally broken down and, and, and eradicated in, in other ways. So it's interesting that you mentioned that how it's being in this new vibrant Ho Chi Minh City has made it a little bit challenging to remember. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if it distorts the memory a little bit because it, it looks familiar, but there's a jarring experience, too, where perhaps it's, it's not what it was.
0: Yeah, I think that that experience of expecting something and then seeing something that's so different is something that anyone mm-hmm. who returns to a place, especially their childhood place after a long time, will experience and I guess I wouldn't qualify it as either less than or greater than, just that it's different. But I, one thing I'll say is that I was really glad that I came back for the first time in 2007. Had I waited another five years, there would be markers of my childhood that would no, you know, that would no longer be here. And that hmm. had I waited until now, I mean, it would be unrecognizable. So the city is hmm. changing so rapidly, and the country is changing so rapidly that some of the place markers that you would use, uh, to recall. And, you know, the t- sort of the touchstones of your memory, uh, are no longer there, you know, the trees, for example, of, uh, Bumatang, mm-hmm. right. That street was really beautifully tree lined. Uh, and that's, mm-hmm. the trees are gone, you know, that's, it's for a bridge that's coming up right.
1: soon. With your memoir, um, you really enjoyed writing about it and, and it kind of, uh, you It had a unique experience for you. Where does your story begin and end in the memoir? Uh, What are some things you're trying to capture in this story? Of course, without revealing too much, because uh, I'll I'll be honest with you, I'm going to be out there buying your book once it's available. Oh, thanks. Um, So I don't want to be spoiled. I don't want to be spoiled yet. But where does your story begin and end?
0: This is something, I mean, uh, as you have mentioned, I think, earlier, it's in a it's f- quite it's far-ish along in its publication process. It was supposed to come out this summer, but because of COVID and everything else, it's been delayed probably until this right. December or January of next year. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm actually still talking with the editor about structure and a lot of other elements of the story. I want it mm-hmm. to kind of start with my first return in 2007. And mm-hmm. that encounter after having been so long, uh, you know, away from the city and the country. As of now, that's where the story begins with me coming back mm-hmm. in 2007 to a mm-hmm. Saigon Ho Chi Minh City. Um, that's very different from the one that's there now that I'm living in. Right. And then, uh, well, it ends on a memory. So uh, you'll, you'll have to read it when uh, when it comes out.
1: Well, you've been back in Vietnam for a few years now. Do you have some recent experiences that would shape, reshape, or add to the story that you're telling in your memoir, or does it shift your your recall a little bit?
0: Uh, yeah, I think it, it does a great deal. And you know, I've I sort of wrapped up a, a manuscript, of that manuscript, um, you know, a year ago, and obviously mm. the country has changed a great deal, but also in the way that it's dealt with COVID and, and been so successful, you know, up to, up to now with it. That's, um, you know, if I were to write an additional chapter, I think, you know, a, an update on on how the country and how the city, and, and it's, you know, and the, everyone here has been kind of dealing with, with COVID. There was one time when the, mm. when the city was so empty that it felt like my memory of the city when I was Hmm. little, you know, and um, but then I don't know if that memory is necessarily correct either. You know, it's just like, I just remember the city being a lot more quiet with bicycles clicking rather than Mm -hmm. motorbikes. So um, you know, so I I just think living here is just a fascinating experience of uh, constantly kind of adjusting um, your sense of, the identity of the city, the identity of the people that live in the city, uh, and and where it could go—it's just—it's it, a really fascinating area uh, of the world to be living in right now, um, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. safe, you know, at the moment.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Earlier on, you mentioned something about uh, something about identity. Um, so, I want to seg towards the the topic of identity representation. Um, and the importance of diverse voices. Uh, we've talked about this before, one way or another, but I'd like to to flesh this out a little more. Um, recently, I reread The Sympathizer mm-hmm. by Viet Thanh Nguyen. I don't know if you read that book yeah, yet. Yeah, I have. Uh, I would suspect you, re- you read it. That's uh, great. I think it won the Pulitzer a few years ago. I, I remember reading it the first time many years ago, and uh, for whatever reason, I couldn't remember much of it. So I reread uh-huh. it. And it brought out more meaning to me. So that was really nice. And all, and about last week, I think it was last week or the week before, I finished reading On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Vung. And I, they were these two books were massive for my understanding and appreciation of um, self-identity and you know the, the culture that I'm tied to.
0: Mm.
1: How has reading these stories from writers that are similar to you, how have they impacted you or how might they inspire or influence you?
0: Well, I think writers um, don't really want to exist and write in a vacuum, right? I don't think we want to kind of mm-hmm. um, say our thing and and have it not be received or be in conversation with the community. And I think writers in mm-hmm. the diaspora, in particular, want th- there to be a conversation. You know, want their piece and want their book to uh, be in conversation with other books, right? Um, as I as I mentioned mm-hmm. before, uh, the writer Andrew Lamb and his essays was one of my moments of realizing that, oh, a Vietnamese American can, can work in this form of the personal essay and do something that is so mm-hmm. incredibly meaningful to me as a reader and say, okay, this is, he's mm-hmm. writing incredibly sophisticatedly again uh, about the experience of, of being, uh, you know, uh, Vietnamese American and growing up, and and uh, trying to uh, juggle that sense of, uh, you know, the Vietnamese identity and the American identity as well. I thought *The Sympathizer* was such mm-hmm. a clever book um, because, yeah, it, it, it deals with such a it, it deals with displacement so well with the with you know the in 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 the person of of that narrator. Um, And also Mm -hmm. it was funny too. It was just genuinely moments that it was just so incredibly comical. And I thought my experience of that book was that, oh, here's a Vietnamese American novelist who can be so funny and humane and, you know, the story is tragic and sad as well. It can be all of these things. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really admired it for that and that it's not just a Sob story, right? That that's our our experience mm-hmm. is so it can be so complex and it is so complex, uh, and that novel captured that complexity to me. You know, I just mm-hmm. even just the the the, the um, casting of uh, South Vietnamese right and, uh, refugees in refugees in the role yeah. of Viet Cong, right? Like it's there's it's so it's so interesting. It's so wonderfully ironic you know so so i, I really enjoy that and notion viewing is is uh n- um novel that is sort of like a memoir in the you know in the guise of, of a novel is also just fantastic so there's such there's such fundamentally sort of different voices that are coming out, out mm-hmm. of the vietnamese american diaspora that i just think all the more power to it and i and, and, I, and I i i love for example getting a chance to, to meet andrew lamb here he's here in vietnam and and mm-hmm. getting to know him and you know uh, be sort of his drinking buddy for a bit there, and, and um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's great, and I hope that you know the Vietnamese American community and Vietnamese diaspora community um, will continue to sort of converse and support one another. There's Diacritics.org, right? It's a great website that was originally edited by Viet Tan Nguyen. He's mm-hmm. no longer the editor there, but it's it's doing some great stuff with kind of getting the word out about all of these pieces.
1: Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Ocean Vuong's book is is the one that stands out. Uh, most clearly to me because I read it so recently, mm-hmm. and I thought, I mean, he's he's a lot closer to me in age than than um, Viet Thanh Nguyen, but his story of of trying to not make it in in American society, it, I don't I don't get the sense that that was part of the the message, but just kind of surviving in the background in some mm-hmm. ways. I don't know. I I thought he he did it so beautifully like the, the book was so good there there are some he is a poet yeah. so the way he writes the story there are uh, some things that just seem quite uh, abstract or like perhaps meaningful to the to the author but a little bit lost hmm. to me as the the audience the reader overall it was just uh it was a lot more relatable hmm. like trying to trying to figure out um that unique american setting that he had been placed in connecticut um yeah. hartford connecticut somewhere that seems like blue-collar America Mm. grappling with the opioid epidemic Mm. and all that stuff not that I have a drug problem and and I can relate to that but there are other elements of it that I I can certainly see in myself yeah and Um, and and and, you know
0: his being intimate right and uh, being a gay Vietnamese um in in America and blue-collar I mean that's it's such a unique uh story and told in A really sort of searing voice and uh, language I, it's I, I really I really admire that book and and you're right I think as a person who's used to I guess novels and uh, more traditional narratives I had I had problems mm-hmm. sort of piecing it together in, at moments uh, mm-hmm. as well but I, I really uh, liked it as a whole and we had a book group yeah. here to discuss it and unfortunately I couldn't meet up with that group uh, but I think we had Mm. similar kind of reactions amongst uh readers here. Good Bit, cues that are back in yeah. Vietnam.
1: <laughs> I thought one of the coolest uh the themes there that he he talked about was um just what American masculinity might mean mm-hmm. and how he like he certainly didn't fit the the mold of American masculinity and um without giving away too much of the the story, the uh the boy that he was interested in also did not always fit the idea of American masculinity but struggled with that. And I mean, I'm not American, but certainly the idea of Canadian masculinity is was something that I kind of, growing up, tried to figure out, try to, um, try to have it, try to embody it one way or another. A lot of it has to do with with hockey and knowing a lot about hockey and playing hockey mm-hmm. as Canadian masculinity. And that sounds very cliche, but you know, hopefully, sometime in the near future, as I'm on um, my own kind of forced sabbatical, I'd like to write a little bit more about. Uh, Exploring that Canadian masculinity and what and how it impacts, you know, immigrant kids or kids from immigrant families like myself. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I think I mean our experiences with that it's it's also it it bears out in terms of our teachings as well, right? I think in when we're when we're Mm -hmm. in the classroom and we're interacting, both of us have had an opportunity to be back in Vietnam and teaching Vietnamese kids, right? And and having Mm -hmm. uh, having a chance to kind of uh, converse with them and talk to them about all of these things, right? Notions of identity yeah. and, and so on. Um, there's a, there's a yeah. memoir out that I think both of us should, should read. I haven't read it yet, but it sounds fascinating. It's called Psy mm-hmm. Kamagon. gone.
1: Yes. I picked that book up a few yeah. days ago, actually.
0: Yeah. It sounds, it sounds really fun. I mean, it's like uh, he's, uh, uh, you know, came to America in seventies the and then um, mm-hmm. punk, like, punk rock, right. was his way of kind of fitting in and, <laughs> um, or at least finding his his uh niche and uh, yeah it sounds really cool um yeah. i'm looking forward to reading yeah. that yeah it's
1: i'll I'll definitely check it out it's in my to read i know it's right now behind me in the in um on my yeah. bookshelf but yeah it's it's always something i'm fascinated with because you know when you come from an immigrant, immigrant family a lot of it is navigating what it means as a boy what it means to be masculine in Canadian society or American society but also some of it has to do at least for me anyways some of it was um, self protection mm. uh, you didn't want to be seen as other you want to integrate quickly so um, you you picked up things that were characteristically Canadian yeah. or character, characteristically uh, or stereotypically boy if if you could call it that way you know so for me is skateboarding playing hockey um that kind of stuff yeah um and so for a long time i i kind of shelved that vietnamese identity to the side quite a bit and, and tried to in one sense protect myself from feeling like other yeah you know by embracing all these things that's not to say i didn't enjoy skateboarding and hockey like i absolutely love hockey and I would still continue skateboarding if my old bones can, <laughs> can deal with it. But you know, that's, that's a pass. Yeah. Um With your writing, are you hoping that your, your writing adds to this, to this fabric of diverse voices, the, um, what it means to be Vietnamese, but also whatever other background that is, whatever culture that you're tied to, like American culture or Canadian culture. I have? think
0: I'm less interested in, um, in that explicitly and I think uh, than mm-hmm. I am in just, just understanding the, our fa- my family's experience in the wider context of the world of sort of refugees and of dis- displaced peoples. So when I started the project, I was really more interested in kind of knowing our story. And I also mm. was more interested in kind of like writing as a way to sort of understand and, and follow questions. And my question was, what was happening in Vietnam at the time? How is, how is Saigon experiencing this rush of change first initially? And then added to that was the story of my family's experience with leaving and then some of us coming back periodically to uh to Mm -hmm. vietnam and and our you know our tale and our tales and how they sort of matched paralleled or dissect or diverted uh, from, you know, the, the bigger tale of Vietnam and the diaspora. So I, I didn't necessarily explicitly go into it thinking how is my book going to fit into the canon, I guess, of Vietnamese-American literature. I think I just wanted to pursue the, some of the questions that were in my mind, you know, about about family, mm-hmm. about displacement, about, as you mentioned, you know, with your question about the notion of home. Like, what, is it, what does it mean to to have a... I think a pretty complicated notion of home and where home is Mm -hmm. because it has been complicated. It's, it's been made complex because we left the country and that's an, that's an essential part of our existence and our identity. And also it's complicated because we've returned to the country to a different country (laughs) ish, you know? So that's right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Your memoir is in the last stages of becoming published and distributed, so uh, you know I'm super excited um, uh, for that, and I'm proud of what you've been able to do. What else do you have going on, or w- what do you have planned for the future?
0: So um, right now I'm working on uh, uh, some short stories. Uh, actually, one of the short stories that I've been working on over the past couple of years is going to be on Fresh.Inc. Um, it's called the VitQ mm-hmm. Casanova, so people can read, read that in its entirety pretty soon. Um so I just want to I just want to write a, a bunch of short stories right now. I kind of want to play with fiction and and see and see where that goes. And then also, you know, try out this whole married life in during the times of COVID in Vietnam. Uh, we've had uh, a really lovely, happy marriage uh, during uh quarantine time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it's been great so far.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time, Tuan. I really appreciate you uh, coming out and speaking. Um, and telling us a little bit more about your story and the memoir that you've written, uh, really appreciate it. Oh,
0: that was terrific, and thanks, thanks a lot for having me on, Alex.
1: Thank you for tuning into this episode of Abroad with Alex Tat. If you've enjoyed listening to the show so far, make sure you hit subscribe, and don't forget to follow me on Instagram at This Is Alex Tat to find out all things related to the show and more. Abroad with Alex Tat is a one-person production. And there's a lot of hard work that goes into producing each and every episode. If you'd like to show some appreciation, please leave a review. The show benefits immensely from your comments and feedback. So drop a review on Apple Podcasts. If you don't use Apple Podcasts, please reach out by email and write to alextat at gmail.com and let me know what you think. Until next time, ciao. Ciao.